All right, good morning, everyone. Hope that you can all hear me, and welcome to those of you who are on Zoom. And if that happens to be you and you have a question or a comment to make, just please wave your hand into the, into the camera. Off to my left here, I have a screen with some of your, your pictures on there. So also for those of you watching online, I'm sorry you can't comment or interact, but if my head is turned over in this direction, uh, it's, it's likely that I'm, I'm looking at someone on, their, on the camera and, uh, you know, probably because they're doing something embarrassing. No, just kidding. Um, let's get back into Revelation. And we're on chapter 1, and we have been taking our time. You might say that that's the understatement of the world. But we're going to continue taking our time because it's so foundational to the rest of our study. And um, just really to getting into the theology of Revelation. Because as I hope you can see so far, it is absolutely 100% uh, theocentric, in the sense that God is at the center, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but even more so Christocentric. And that will be all the more apparent as we go on, that, that Christ is the center and, and He is the revelator of the Father, and really also then the fullness of the Godhead as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, we mentioned last week, um, we spent some time in the section that begins in chapter 1, verse 9, where, of course, John is, is on the island of Patmos. We spent a lot of time talking about what it means that he is in the Spirit or in Spirit on the Lord's day. Um, again, this being language that John uses in his gospel. Um, of course, it's Jesus originally, but it's, it's John capturing that specific language and that specific usage to show us that in Spirit... Uh, refers to worship, and then on the Lord's Day, of course, Sunday, that being the day of worship, um, even since the earliest days of the church. So we have uh, John in the context of worship himself receiving this revelation. And then you remember as he's, as he's there in, in divine service on, in verse 10, um, behind him comes this loud voice, this voice like a trumpet, and the voice says, and again, this is a little bit cheating because it's red letter. John doesn't even know at this point to whom the voice belongs to, although it becomes clear to him later on that this is the voice of Jesus. That voice says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then he lists off the seven cities in which the seven churches are found. Um, again, we see the sevenfold church here. In the, same, in the same way back in verse, uh, in verse 4, we have the seven spirits before the throne of God. I mean, there are seven spirits, yes, and, and yet it's one Holy Spirit. There are seven churches, and yet it's one church. And so we're just grasping how it is that John speaks and, and uses these numbers. So the idea that there's seven, I mean, of course, there were more than seven churches around at this point in time in history. The fact that he has selected seven is precisely for that usage that we would see that this is given to the whole church. All right, well, after this voice is done telling him to, to write everything he sees in a book and send it to these seven churches, then John turns around to see the voice that was speaking. And on turning, he says, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Now, what we did last week was we jumped back to Zechariah 3, and there's no need to, no need to turn back there um, again. I'll, I'll do that for you quickly. But just back in Zechariah 3, and we remarked on, uh, well, it's, it begins at chapter 3 and then goes into chapter 4, and there 
we not only see this stone with seven eyes, we want to keep that in our mind, but of course we see this vision of a golden lampstand. And, and then, you know, there, are two, there happen to be two olive trees beside it, and we're going to talk about that as we get further on into Revelation. But the point being that this olive stand, excuse me, this lampstand that uh, John sees is identical with that lampstand, or the imagery is the same at least, from Zechariah. Okay, where you have, and then the key from Zechariah is, let me see, yes. So Zechariah chapter 4, in response to the lampstand, John is told, verse or excuse me, Zechariah is told, verse 10, these seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the whole earth. Okay, so again, we're putting these puzzle pieces together, and we're, we're remembering that this is how John does theology. This is how Revelation works. It is layer upon layer upon layer, and so we sort of just want to keep all of these different um, things in, in our minds, and then we'll, we put them all together, and we have this coherent, multi-layered vision um, of what these lampstands are. So let's just leave that set for now um, as, we, as we find out the fullness then of what these golden lampstands are mentioned in verse 12. In verse 13, we read, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Okay? So standing in the very midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, one in human image. But that language, the Son of Man, of course comes to us uh, from the prophetic literature. Throughout his prophecy, Ezekiel himself is called a Son of Man, distinct from the Son of Man, but a Son of Man. Um, and so we see, you know, again, that he is in the office of the Son of Man. He is acting as a Son of Man. Sort of like how a pastor, um, you know, which means shepherd, is in the office of the good shepherd, the good pastor. There is only one good shepherd and all other shepherds are in his office. There is only one Son of Man and all other sons of men are, are in his office, so to speak. But in order to grasp something about this office, and, and, and then more specifically this person, the Son of Man, let's turn back to Daniel chapter 7 first. That's very, very helpful for seeing um, what John is doing here with these images. And we'll also see what, if anything, new John is doing. So in Daniel 7, once you get there, I'll simply point out that if you're in the ESV Lutheran Study Bible, right at, at the beginning of chapter 7, you have this heading, Daniel's vision of the four beasts. So we're not going to look at that, but I just point that out as we go our way so that you can see that this imagery of, of beasts and the symbolic apocalyptic genre is, John's not the one inventing it. It's been around for a long time. It's in Zechariah, it's in Daniel, it's in other books of the Old Testament, um, especially the Minor Prophets. And so John is writing in that genre, in that literary world. Now, as we go on in chapter 7, let's begin at chapter 7, verse 9, because we're actually introduced here to two different characters, and we have to have both of these images in our mind if we're going to see some of the really brilliant, nuanced, detailed things that John is going to do in his account. So, 
Daniel 7, verse 9, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Okay, so here's the first character, as it were, that we're, that we're introduced to. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Okay, so in this Daniel's vision of the Ancient of Days, we obviously have God, but we don't yet know if it's Father or if it's Son. We don't really yet know. Although, with the white hair, the hair as white as snow, that's typical biblical imagery more for the Father. As well as sitting on the throne, that too is typical biblical imagery for the Father. Um, and then we see things that are common to the book of Revelation as, as it expands into the coming chapters. This idea of thousands upon thousands around him and ten thousands, ten thousands uh, serving him, etc. And then look, he is seated, uh, the court sat in judgment and the books were open. And so we see here um, this, this divine figure acting as judge and a courtroom scene which, of course, sometimes gets a bad rap in theology these days where people don't, you know, they, they think that the courtroom-type theology, the courtroom-type imagery isn't really native to the Scriptures. Well, of course it is, and it's right here. Um, they mean to do that, by the way, to discredit this idea of forensic justification, that, that God imputes to us the righteousness of His Son and credits that righteousness to us solely on account of faith and apart from all works in us, and faith itself being a gift. So that forensic righteousness that justifies before God, they don't, they don't like that, and so then they don't like the courtroom imagery and language. Well, too bad. Here it is in Daniel 7, as well as many other places in the Scriptures. Now, we have to move on, because in verse, um, and we're going to skip, let me see real quick. Yeah, let's skip over to verse 13, and here in 13, we're introduced to a new vision and a new figure. So Daniel 7, 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Okay, now we have, so we have in the, in the first instance, back in verse 9, the ancient of days. Now we have, in this instance, one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. Ah, thus we know they're distinct. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Ah, now we've figured it out. The Ancient of Days, seated on the throne in judgment, is the Father. And the one who comes before him is one like 
a son of man. So a divine one, and yet in human vesture, one like a son of man. And this language of a son of man or the son of man um, is, is amongst Jesus' favorite when referring to himself. And I think even here in Daniel 7, you can see why. God the Father, the Ancient of Days, is seated in judgment. There's 10,000 times 10,000 around him. You know, you've got the flames of fire in his throne and proceeding out from his throne and the wheels like here. So here you're picturing a chariot-like throne. The wheels are burning. I mean, this is God in his pure holiness, in his otherness, in his awesome character and love, that which, you know, consumes all things sinful. Um, simply by its pure goodness. And so, so he's seated in judgment, and before him comes this Son of Man, this one like a Son of Man. And we know this to be Jesus. He's presented before him, and look, there's a coronation that takes place. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him, etc., this is exactly what happens when Jesus ascends. You know, 40 days after his death and resurrection, he ascends into heaven and he is presented before the Ancient of Days. This is a glimpse into what happens. By the way, Revelation 12 will give us a very similar glimpse. It's a glimpse into what happens after Jesus' ascension. Okay. So all authority in heaven and on earth are given to him. To who? Well, the Son of God, yes. Hasn't the Son of God always had all authority and, and power and dominion? Yes. So in what sense is this new? Well, it is, the Son of, it is the Son of God wrapped in human vesture and thus one like the Son of Man or the Son of Man. And so to a human being, yes, true God and true man, but this is the change. To a human being, is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations, languages should serve him. Okay. Now you can you remember too how Jesus, when he is ascended, is enveloped in clouds. And look how verse 13 is. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient day of days. So enveloped in those clouds, he ascends into heaven and is presented before God. By the way, because he is true man and because he has united himself with all believers and made himself flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone, giving us his body and blood to eat and to drink that we might become living members of his body, when he ascends there, we ascend with him. And by the way, this is the judgment. I mean, Christ is, is not only declared righteous, but he's declared victorious and worthy of all authority in heaven on earth. And that is, we participate in that with Christ Jesus. That's how he gives us the victory. Again, this is this imagery of him being king of kings and lord of lords. We are those kings. We are those lords. We are the loyal members of his, of his kingdom. Okay, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom um, one that shall not be destroyed. Again, this is a kingdom not of this world, uh, but an everlasting kingdom and one in which we partake. Okay, so we have these two figures, the ancient of days. Now, 
we can we only we can only visualize relatively little much more with the ancient of days because the ancients of, of days is described as clothing white as snow hair on his head like pure wool throne fiery flames wheels on the throne burning fire a stream of fire issuing out um, like that's the visual imagery we get there the one who is the son of man much less visual imagery shrouded in in clouds one like the son of man having human form and vesture right? and presented before him but that's all we get okay so we want to keep that imagery in mind and then let's go into um, Daniel 10 and let's get a little bit more on this um, this vision of the son of man so flip over to Daniel 10 Now, there's a little bit of debate as to whether this is actually a vision of, of uh, Jesus, the Son of Man, or if this is a, vi a vision of, of an angel. There's a little bit of deba debate, and I think we'll see why as we go along. But uh, Brighton, in his commentary, and as, as far as I'm concerned, uh, this is most certainly a reference to uh, Jesus, to um, the vision of the Son of Man. So let's simply pick up at chapter 10, verse 5. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. All right, so picture this. White linen garment, um, a belt of gold belt of fine gold around his waist. His body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. All right, keep that imagery in mind, like the sound of a multitude. That's what his voice is like. That's what his words are like. Okay, and I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision. But a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief priests, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for the, is for the days yet to come. Now that, by the way, by the way this idea of... Um, you know, 
being, uh, his being withstood by the 21, uh, 21 days by the prince of the kingdom of Persia and this kind of thing. I mean, what's really going on here is that behind the, behind the um, political powers of Daniel's day, it's clearly recognized that there are demonic powers at work. And that, by the way, is going to be a theme we see in Revelation we'll spend a lot of time on. But it is that you start to interpret the governments of the world. Again, you, you have to do this in a, in a little bit of a careful way. On, on the one hand, all authority comes from God. And we've got this Romans 13 theology of being obedient to man insofar as we can be obedient to man. Because again, that authority is, is given by God. And yet, that is precisely corrupted. That's precisely the battleground where the principalities and powers of darkness try to attack and then use man in, or against man, use the government against the people. Um, and so, so this becomes then a major other side of the coin, so to speak, when it comes to thinking of government biblically. Um, there is almost always some sort of demonic influence I think is indicated very plainly when you look out when you look at history and just how friendly governments have been towards Christianity, overall, um, not very is the is the easy answer there. Okay, well let's carry on. That's anyway. That's the only reason some people don't think that this is Jesus. I don't think that that happens to be a problem. I think that he's engaged in spiritual warfare, and we could say much about that, but I just don't think it's very very necessary. Verse fifteen. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. Okay, well again, we have picture and imagery of spiritual warfare going on, but we also have this, again, the appearance of a man and, and the likeness of children of man. That's this figure. And he is going to tell us what is inscribed in the book of truth. He's going to tell Daniel that. This becomes very important later on in Revelation where Jesus is the one who alone is worthy to open the seals of the scroll to reveal the contents of the book of truth. So this all the more proves and indicates that this is Christ. Now what we see going on here is not only then this figure of uh, the Son of Man clothed in linen, the belt of gold, um, his body described as barrel, his face like lightning, his eyes like torches, his arms and legs like burnished bronze. Keep that imagery in your mind. But we also see this figure then uh, ordaining and commissioning Daniel for his prophetic task. Okay, So that's the main take-home point. The imagery 
and the commissioning of Daniel. Now, with those things in mind, both Daniel 7 and Daniel 10, let's flip back to Revelation and see how familiar this is. So as we go back to Revelation 1, Daniel turns to see the voice that was speaking. He sees seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, he is clothed with a long robe, and the language is a robe, actually there's literally a language that goes, or a robe that goes down to the feet. And this is the same language used to describe the priestly attire. So not only does it tie into Daniel uh, 10 with the man who is wearing the, the linen garment, um, but it ties into this idea that wh whoever it is who is wearing this robe is priestly at the least, but we know him to be our high priest, okay? And with a golden sash around his chest. Notice the similarity. In Daniel 10, it was described as a golden uh, belt around his waist. I suppose, de depending on how one defines waist or the linguistic differences between um, Hebrew and, and Greek, there's just not that much difference. But here, so here too, you have the, the long robe and the golden sash, which the golden sash also has this layer of royalty to it in both contexts, both Daniel and here, royalty. And so in, by this imagery, we're seeing not only Revelation connecting with the Daniel 7 and 10 tradition, we're also seeing it presenting this figure as uh, our, our great high priest and as king of kings. Now look what comes next, verse 14. This is the part that's very interesting. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. Ah, if we go back to Daniel 7, who was it that we saw who had white hair, white like snow? That was the Ancient of Days, distinct from the Son of Man. That was the Father, not the Son. But here the Son, the Son of Man takes on the image and appearance of the Ancient of Days. I mean, this is John's subtle way of saying, you know, think back to John's Gospel, show us the Father, Philip says to him, and it will be enough. And he says, Philip, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me? I and the Father are one. He goes on to say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So this is John's way of doing that theology here in Revelation to see the one who is the Son of Man is to see and have revealed unto you the Ancient of Days. Right? So to see the Son of Man is to see the Ancient of Days. To see the Son is to see the Father. To see Jesus is to see who God really is. He is the express image of the invisible God. All right? So all of this... Um, John is able to do it simply by this imagery. And don't forget to picture this in your mind, of course. You know, he's got on a, he's standing, John is turned around in the midst of the lampstands, is this one wearing the long priestly robe, the golden sash, the hairs of his head were white, uh, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Again, that comes right out of Daniel 10. His feet were like burnished bronze. Daniel 10 again, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. 
And do you remember how now, I think it was in Zechariah, his voice was like multitudes. Now his voice is like a roar of waters. So there's a plurality in his voice. Well, let's pick apart a couple of these key elements. So, of course, John, in a sense, sees Jesus like this at the transfiguration. It was Peter, James, and John who saw the Lord transfigured and describes him in very similar kinds of terms. So we want to keep that in mind. We also want to keep Zechariah, Daniel 7, and Daniel 10 here in mind as well. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. That, of course, indicates strength, um, the ability to crush one's enemies under his feet. And, of course, you know, ultimately going back to the, the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel in Scripture, that he will crush the serpent under his heel. And so now we see his heels are literally metal. His feet are burnished bronze. Um, refined in a, in a furnace, this... I mean, this would mean like, like, um, like beautiful, like shining, like uh, brilliant kind of uh, metal. And so there's a sense in which his feet are beautiful. And that's the fulfillment of, uh, of those, those Old Testament passages. You know, how beautiful are the feet who, of him who comes bringing good news. And this is the preacher of good news in whom we are all uh, simply just ambassadors of him and, and apostles of him, those sent by him. Um, but he is the one. So, thus we see his feet. And then his voice was like the roar of many waters. Now, we connected that with the, the, great, the, the voice that is like a multitude in Zechariah. And Ezekiel describes a figure and his voice is exactly like this. And so we know Ezekiel is talking about the same figure, the, our Lord Jesus. And his voice is described in Ezekiel 43.2 as being um, a voice that sounds like many waters. Now, what is the deeper connection between I mean, the fact that Jesus' voice, when, again, when he's, glor when he's glorified, when he's in his majesty, when he speaks, that his voice sounds like many waters? Well, Maybe, perhaps very simply, there's a plurality. Um, it, there's a multitudinousness to his speech. We could think of that very plainly, that it is the same Lord Jesus who speaks in and through the plurality and the multitudinousness of Scripture. The many voices, the, the great crowd of, of authors and voices in, in Scripture, um, and thus he speaks to us. We can also go even back beyond the scriptures as the scriptures themselves reveal. And we can think of, of what it was uh, in the very beginning. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know too, as we go back to Genesis, you have, you have water and the Spirit hovering over the water, and then you have this voice that speaks let there be, and everything that is comes into being. You know, Jesus will say that his word is spirit. And now we see that his word is water. His voice was like a roar of many waters. And so we see that this is the one from the very beginning, the one through whom, for whom, by whom all things were made. And it's just beautiful imagery that, that brings that to mind. Okay, then we learn more. In his right hand, 
he held seven stars. So we're picturing this figure, and we're picturing these seven stars. You know, it's hard to, it's hard mentally to, to gather perspective. What exactly is John seeing? How large is this figure? Um, it's hard to know. But in his right hand, he holds seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Yeah. And that, that word in Greek for face could just as easily be appearance, I think. But um, whether you take it as the whole thing, the whole of him shining like the sun, or, or specifically his face, it, it doesn't much matter. Um, obviously, he's all, all shining, and this is an awesome appearance. Um, again, takes us to that language of the transfiguration, where his, sun shi- where his face shines, shines like the sun in full strength. Um, out of his mouth comes this two-edged sword. That is to say, in, in no uncertain terms, like his word comes out and it has, it has the ability to, to cut, to divide. It has the ability to put to death. Um, we know also it has the ability, ability to bring to life, but that's not so much what's imaged in the sword. Um, what he speaks is powerful. What he speaks is, um, oh, what's the right word? Yeah, I don't know. I'm struggling to even put it into words. Perhaps that's why John didn't. It's a sharp two-edged sword that proceeds from his mouth. I love in in Greek. I think this word is something like uh, diastoma for two-edged. So stoma is mouth. So it's a two-mouthed sword. And they, there you get into like sort of the gruesome imagery of what a sword is. They, you know, that language comes from a sword being viewed as a devourer, that which devours flesh and blood. And so to have a diastoma sword, a, maybe I can find it quick here. Um, that's, the, uh, that's the nature. Yeah, a, a romphea, that's a sword, and then the diastomos. It's the two-edged, two-mouthed sword. So this is an awesome and incredible image. And it is, it is very much like the one that Daniel stood before, although here seems to be even more powerful, awesome, amazing, representative of the Ancient of Days, uh, really an incredible vision. And just as Daniel stood before one like the Son of Man and was commissioned, well, guess what's going to happen to John? And this, too, indicates then for us that John, in recording these things, is well aware that he is writing Scripture. So, um, verse 17, When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. Very similar to Daniel, who says he fell as, as one asleep. I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me. Again, think, that's exactly the imagery in Daniel saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last. Now this language, very reminiscent of um, the Alpha and Omega that we heard the Father speak of back in verse 8, very reminiscent of that, but different. And this language harkens back to Isaiah chapter 46 and chapter 48. To be the first and the last in that context has to do already with being the bridegroom. 
So only if you go digging into the scriptures for where, is, where do we find this language of the first and the last, and then what is the context of that language, do we see this aspect, that the one who is speaking is, is the bridegroom, the one who loves his church. So, I am the first and the last, he says, and the living one. Um, which has a sort of twofold meaning. I mean, in the one sense, to be the living one means he is, he is the only true God. He is different than all idols. All other idols are dead. They're dumb. They can't speak. They can't hear. They can't act. Um, he can. He is the living one. But I think even more to the point, and that's the way Brighton takes it, but I think even more to the point here is the resurrection. I am the living one. And we're going to see how in the context that bears itself out. But he is the one who um, laid down his life willingly. No one could take his life from him. He laid it down of his own accord. He has the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it back up again. He is the living one. In John's gospel, he offers not only bread of life and not only water of life, but he actually offers... Um, and says that he is living bread and living water. And there's a distinction there that's subtle but important. It's not just a means, it is life itself. He's not just a means, he is life itself. Um, he is the living one, the living bread, the living water. And when we partake, we partake of him. And so to, to have life is to have him. To reject him is to reject life, thus eternal death. So he is the living one. And this is why I think it has to do with the resurrection. Look at what comes next. I died, okay, <laughs> there's Good Friday, and behold, I am alive forevermore. There's Easter. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Okay, now Hades is one of those slippery words. It can, it can from time to time mean different things. In general, the two things it can mean is hell proper, you know, where those who have rejected Christ and, and thus chosen to damn themselves, where they go. Um, or Hades can mean simply and generically the realm of the dead, such that even if you are Christian and you die, you have entered Hades. Okay, That's actually the sense in which we ought to take it here. Death and it is, we ought not read death and hell. We ought to read um, death and Hades as being identical, as being um, just descriptions of the same thing. That makes perfect sense when you look at this. He is the living one. I have died, and behold, I am alive. Thus, I have the keys to death and Hades. I have the key to death. Um, I have the key to release you from death, to release you from Hades. That's what's going on here. I have the keys of death and Hades. Let's see if I have anything. Ah, oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, yeah, I see. So, yeah, back, back at the beginning of this, um, I am the first and the last. That I am is an ego, I, me, and I think it's the first one in the gospel, we, or excuse me, in Revelation we've had so far. The ego, I, me is the same thing, I am that I am, uh, coming from the Septuagint in Exodus 3. So the I am statements in John's gospel, this is uh, one of Jesus' favorite ways of doing it, and John records it frequently, um, where Jesus is saying, I am... Yahweh, I am the Lord, namely, 
the first and the last. So, ego I me, the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Um, again, it's the sense in which is like he has mastered death, and now any who die may be set free by him. Okay, verse 19. Ha, I got to stop looking at my Bible because I'm seeing all these other references to other Old Testament prophets written in, and we'll never get anywhere if I keep following us, you know, leading us down all these rabbit trails. But yeah, this, there's other references to this, in, um, to this section in the section before in Malachi 3 and 4. Okay, verse 19, look what he says. The same thing he said to Daniel, effectively. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, that helps us a lot, particularly with understanding those lampstands. We saw the lampstands in Zechariah. We've seen the lampstands here. We've noted that it's a sevenfold lampstand. It's seven lampstands and yet one, just as there are seven spirits and yet one, just as there are seven churches and yet one. And now the Lord connects these dots for us. We, by the way, know that it's Jesus from this section, from his description, you know, the one who died and is alive. Now we know that the speaker is definitively Jesus. And he tells us that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, what we're going to see here in a way that really the apocalyptic genre can only allow you to do is as you picture those seven lampstands, you're, you can picture the seven spirits of God. You can picture the seven churches. You can picture the seven eyes, um, as we saw back in Zechariah and as we're going to see uh, moving forward, the, second, the seven eyes of the Lord. So there's just layer upon layer upon layer stacked upon this one image. Okay, the stars in his right hand, which we have a little less data on, are interesting because the stars, the seven stars that correlate with the seven churches, these are the angels of the seven churches. And this leads us to a split then, and it's a relatively minor one. I don't think it much matters. But it's, there's a split here in, in terms of interpretation. Does one take angels, which is uh, the Greek just simply means messengers, does it take them to be angelic beings, you know, spirits, the way we think of angelic beings, or human pastors, messengers in this sense? The scriptures use the, the, this language, uh, angelos, this language for messenger, for both angels, um, angelic beings, and pastors, just being messengers. It's Again, an, an angel is, is spirit, and what he does is he's a messenger. In the same way, a, a, a man is a, a man, but what he does is be a messenger. And so this is an office. Okay, well, who holds that office? Yeah, who knows? So I'll try to maybe just stick with the most compelling. If you have these as seven angels of the seven churches, it's not so much as if each angel is just 
at those churches. And because you, then you're kind of going, well, does every single congregation have its own angel? Um, how big does that a congregation have to get before it gets an angel? Uh, and this kind of thing. Um, it makes sense to see those uh, the seven angelic figures then as sort of the seven angels that God gives to watch over his entire church on earth. And that makes more sense as you tr- track along with Revelation. You see like the seven trumpet angels and the seven censer angels. And now you've got seven angels of the church. And to say that these are all the sa- same seven angels is attractive, just in terms of kind of a cohesion of revelation. Similarly, I don't think that, I'd have to double check in Brighton, but I don't think that revelation ever, and if it does, it's maybe only like here in one other place. I don't think so, though. Does, does revelation ever use the language of angel or messenger for a human being in any other context? And I think the answer there is no. So that also favors seeing these as angelic beings. Okay, well, in what sense might we see these as uh, human beings, as human pastors uh, who are going to receive uh, these letters? Well, simply because if you drop down to chapter 2, verse 1, and you read, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, and then the whole message is, you know, especially some of these messages are quite... um, quite pointed, you know, and the Lord is calling his church to repent. It's, it's hard, it's, it's a little bit hard to imagine, perhaps, the Lord speaking this way to an actual angelic being. Not so hard to imagine the Lord speaking this way to uh, a pastor who's there, who's part of these people, who's responsible for these people, and, and who very concretely can teach and say and do something about these things. Um, so that, that probably is the strongest argument for seeing these as human messengers. I, can I tell you the truth? I don't really know. I don't really think it matters. I mean, play with it in your mind one way or the other. See, see if one stands out to you. Maybe if I'm going to be ob- objective as I possibly can be, I lean slightly toward the angelic beings reading. But again, I'm not sure it matters. Okay, so now we have these, uh, these seven stars, which, by the way, yeah, another thing is biblically, stars often represent angels. We're going to see that re- um, elsewhere in Revelation. Back in Job, we see angels as called, as called stars. It's a very common thing in Scripture. So that's, that's another thing that points us in the direction of angelic beings here. Well, let's not lose the forest for the trees. Jesus introduces him, himself as one who is like the Son of Man, one who bears the marks of the Ancient of Days, one who is crucified and risen, one who has power over death and Hades, um, one who walks in the midst of the lampstands, in the midst of the churches. And I always take great comfort in this because uh, in all the chaos that is congregational life, and boy, that's just here in this little bizarre corner of the world. I mean, think of congregational life in all its different forms all across the globe. I I take great comfort in thinking that the Lord is the one who walks in the midst of his church, that he is not far from us, that he knows our needs, that he knows exactly where we need to repent, and he is leading us in that way. He offers his forgiveness, his grace, and his mercy. He empowers us to fight the good fight. And he's not at all far off just hoping we, we could do our best and somehow make it out. No, he's walking in our midst and he knows us and our struggles 
intimately. And I take, I take great, great comfort in that as a pastor. Because one thing you realize right off the bat as a human pastor is like, you're not sufficient and you're not up for the task. It has to be the Lord and may he use you and may he use the others in the congregation that his will may be done. And so this is to me a very comforting thing that he is the one who walks in the midst of the lampstand, that he is the one that holds the seven angels of these churches in the palm of his hand which whether those are angelic beings or pastors, it doesn't matter. It's super comforting that we are in the palm of his hand and, and dear to him and um, you know, something that he, is, he, he cherishes and will protect. All right, well, that's the stunning introduction to the vision that is Revelation. I love it, as you can tell. I, I've spent way too long here. I sometimes think with this vision and the throne room vision, it's like if I, could, if I got stuck here for all eternity, I'd be just fine. It's marvelous and wonderful things. Kind of a foretaste of heaven in itself. Okay, now we go to the letters to the churches. And we've got about five minutes left. I think we'll, we'll get a fair way into Ephesians here. So, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Now, when we get to these cities, as I mentioned briefly before, I'm not super big into thinking it's all that helpful to know what history um, or geology might teach us about these cities, simply because think of your own context, and then think of someone writing a letter to you, a pastoral letter to, to our congregation, let's say, and then um, 2,000 years later, people are trying to look in the broadest, the, the broadest possible brushstrokes as to like what was going on in our culture and then how this letter relates. It's just, it strikes me as quite far-fetched. All the more so when I look at uh, commentaries and hardly any of them are agreed on what we're supposed to make of these uh, historical and geological findings. Anyway, here's what Brighton has to say about Ephesus. Ephesus vied with Smyrna and Pergamum for the honor of being the chief city of the province in Asia. Now, if you want to uh, go back to page 2197 in your study Bible, you can follow along so that these, these names aren't quite so abstract. You can see... Um, you can see the island of Patmos there, and then just northeast of Patmos is uh, Ephesus. That's what we're talking about right now. You can see where it's talking about Smyrna and Pergamum. Those are the two cities to the north. So, Ephesus vied with Smyrna and Pergamum for the honor of being the chief city of the province of Asia. Eventually, it became the principal commercial center and replaced Pergamum as the provincial capital. Ephesus was situated at the mouth of the Caister River on a gulf of the Aegean Sea. By the middle of the first century AD, it had a population of around a quarter of a million people. It was an important commercial center and was the hub of three great trade routes. The imperial cult flourished in Ephesus, for a temple was dedicated to the Flavian emperors, Vespasian, who ruled from 69 to 79, and his two sons, Titus, 79 to 81, and Domitian, 81 to 96. Domitian came to be regarded as a god, especially by the Greeks. His reign was characterized by terror, especially in the latter years. And Eusebius reports that Christians were persecuted. It was during the reign of Domitian that John wrote the Revelation. Paul, together with Apollos, Priscilla, and Achilla, 
was instrumental in forming a Christian community years before John became bishop of the church in Ephesus, uh, reference to Acts 18. The major cult was the worship of Diana, Artemis in Greek, a great temple about four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens was erected in honor of the goddess. And I think if I remember correctly, this, uh, this temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was really a big deal. And also Diana, you're probably thinking of like this really elegant, slim, feminine figure hunting in the woods. That's not, that's not Diana of Ephesus. Diana in Ephesus is a rather, rather terrifying statue, female, and um, how to describe it? Sort of like a V-shape always. And then around where you would expect to see like the breasts and stomach area, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of debate about what these are. I think for a long time they thought they were breasts, and so like covered in thousands of breasts, sort of a fertility-type image. Um, and then other, other scholars say, no, these would have been um, uh, other symbols, uh, let's just keep it PG, other symbols of fertility. And so uh, anyway, this sort of gruesome, gruesome um, pagan figure not, uh, not beautiful or attractive to the modern Western mind at all. Um, but anyway, when, yeah, so when you think of Artemis or Diana of Ephesus, that's, that's who we're talking about. So you can look that up on Google, you know, as you see fit. All right, well, that's Ephesus. And again, I don't know how much you really, like, gain by knowing that, but at least we know something about Ephesus. Of course, it mentions uh, Aquila and Priscilla and... Um, the founding of the church in Ephesus, how John become, later becomes a bishop. Of course, Timothy's there, Tychicus is there for a while. Um, yeah, so it's quite the church. Well, let's get a little ways into it very quickly. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So again, this is our Lord Jesus. Precious to him are these churches. He walks in their midst. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Okay, so the first thing we know is that this church is dealing with false apostles, those who claim that, hey, you know, Paul told you, what Paul told you was right, but let's add to that, and this is going to be even better. Um, so they're dealing with false teachers, false apostles, and they found them to be false. Okay, verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay, well, we'll have to get into this next week. We have identified here that they've dealt with false apostles, and we've also dealt, uh, we also see that they've dealt with a group of false teachers called the Nicolaitans. 
So those two things are definitely shaping who Ephesus, the church in Ephesus is right now. And then we'll take a look at some of these other details and some of the other things our Lord has to say next week. The Lord be with you.